Osiris Media Group. Head over to OsirisPod.com. Check out all the podcasts they have to offer. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. They got the goods. That is OsirisPod.com. Today, I have an excellent episode for you where I present an interview with author and associate professor in the Crown Family School of Social Work, Policy, and Practice at the University of Chicago, William Seitz. Seitz's first book, entitled Remaking New York, Primitive Globalization and the Politics of Urban Community, focused on the transformation of New York City during the final quarter of the 20th century. His latest, which is the focus of this episode, is entitled Sunrise Chicago, Afrofuturism and the City. It's a book that can be aptly described as a comprehensive exploration of American jazz composer, bandleader, and poet Sun Ra's formative years that persist as much more than simply a biography, but an analyzation of the urban spaces and relationships that shaped the transcendent musician into the otherworldly philosophical leader of his band known as the Orchestra. Sun Ra, born Sonny Blunt, was one of the most wildly prolific and eccentric figures in the history of music. Renowned for extravagant performances in which his orchestra appeared in neo-Egyptian garb, the keyboardist and bandleader also espoused an interstellar cosmology that claimed the planet Saturn as his true home. In Sunrise Chicago, Seitz brings this grandiose musician back to Earth, specifically to Chicago's South Side, where, from 1946 to 1961, he lived and relaunched his career. The post-war South Side was a hotbed of unorthodox religions and cultural activism. Afrocentric philosophies flourished as Elijah Muhammad was building the Nation of Islam. It was an unruly musical crossroads where Sonny Blunt drew from an array of intellectual and musical sources. From radical nationalism, revisionist Christianity, and science fiction to jazz, blues, Latin dance music, and pop exotica, to construct a philosophy and performance style that imagined a new identity and future for African Americans. Sunrise Chicago shows that late 20th century Afrofuturism emerged from a deep utopian engagement with the city. And that, by excavating the post-war black experience of Sun Ra's South Side surroundings, we can come to see the possibilities of urban life in new ways. In this episode, William and I converse about the birthplace of Sun Ra, which is Birmingham, Alabama, and examine how the city's extraordinarily vibrant musical culture began to shape a young Sonny Blunt. Then we explore Sun Ra's time in Chicago, where he grew to fame gigging at Club Delisa and in Calumet City, as we explore the myriad of influences and relationships, particularly his friendship with Alton Abraham, that became central to the development of his music and mythology. Ultimately, this episode serves as an ode to the legend and legacy of Sun Ra, and as a celebration of the intergalactic genius of a true visionary. For decades, I've been absolutely fascinated by Sun Ra. I've explored his music catalog extensively, and although I've read a great deal about him throughout the years, I can't say I ever had my head around who he truly was, or how such an eccentric, radiant human like him came to be. William's book provides such an extensive background into Sun Ra's upbringing, in the places where he honed his talents and found his inspiration, that I finally feel I understand how he came to be. It's a deeply researched enlightening book and you will get a taste of what is in it and learn a great deal about the great Sun Ra in this interview with William Seitz. Podcast. 
Thanks again for uh, um, coming on the program. Uh, I, I love the book. It was so insightful. I, I've been a fan of Sun Ra for some time, but it's just he's such an enigmatic figure and fascinating figure, and it's it really gave some good context to um, where he came from and, and what he's doing. But I was hoping we could start by, um, if you could kind of explain some of the approach you took in writing Sun Ra Chicago, because, uh, you know... It, uh, the lens which you viewed his life and career was so um, compelling. And, it, you know, this is well beyond a biography and displays a very unique relationship between Sun Ra and the cities where he came from. Well, actually, he would say he's not from those cities and from somewhere far, far away. But, <laughs> um, how would you describe um, kind of the, uh, uh, the aim of your book or, or, you know, kind of what you, um, you know, the, the, the way you approached looking at Sun Ra? Sure. I mean, as you mentioned, I think Sun Ra is a, you know, he's a figure of growing fascination for a lot of folks. Um, and there's a there's a wonderful biography by uh, John Sweat called Space is the Place that I really strongly recommend folks who don't know much about Sun Ra uh, to check out. Um, but what I wanted to do with my book was, as you say, not not so much a conventional biography, but to do something that responded to, to something I've always been fascinated about with Sun Ra, which is, um, you know, as people know, he's sort of from somewhere else, from outer space. And in many ways, culturally now, I think people see him as a kind of a free-floating figure who's just part of the kind of larger, you know, global cultural landscape. Um, and yet I've always been fascinated by the fact that um, – that, that Chicago and his time in Chicago was so important to his musical development and to his intellectual development. And I also came to feel that by looking at Sun Ra, we could actually learn things we didn't know about the city of Chicago. So I wanted a book that kind of faced both directions that, you know, sort of looked at the impacts of the city on Sun Ra and his development and sort of how he became Sun Ra, which is um, very much a kind of Chicago story. I think, um, but also how uh, he reimagined the city himself uh, and how so if, we, if we look at the city and kind of listen to the city through his eyes and ears and through his music, um, you know, we do see a Chicago, particularly a Chicago in the 1940s and 50s, which, um, which, which, which we don't recognize so easily uh, as we do, I think, from more conventional images. Uh, you know, I think a lot of the... Uh, uh, sort of what we might think of as kind of high culture uh, looks at the Black South Side in Chicago in the 1940s and 50s focus on, you know, literary luminaries like Richard Wright and, and Gwendolyn Brooks. Um, and then sort of we also have a lens that looks at the, you know, the kind of the, what we might call the low culture, uh, the sort of rough world of the blues, you know, the world of, of Muddy Waters and, and Helen Wolf and those are very much important parts of the South side in the 1940s and fifties, but Sunrise kind of milieu in that, in that city and in those parts of the city, uh, were, were very different kinds of places and sort of his, his sensibility, uh, intellectually and the kind of things he was trying to do culturally with his music come from a, a, a kind of a, a different place. You know, ultimately my goal was to, to sort of, um, you know, help us see how Sun Ra became a kind of a, a musical utopian, uh, not by sort of detaching himself from the city, but by exploring the city and trying to learn to see the city and and kind of what black urban experience is like in the city in a new way. Yeah, which is so fascinating, too, when you think about the fact that he won't uh, claim to be from these places, of course, but these places, as outlined in your book so well, you know, did so much to influence and define, and obviously vice versa, and we'll touch on both of that. And uh, and we'll touch more on Chicago, I know that, but, um, you know, when the book starts out, we you uh, bring us back to his youth, and, um, you know, another place that's examined fully is, is the Magic City, Birmingham, Alabama, and that does start to lay the foundation for who he is or, you know, what was influencing him. And I guess just generally speaking, how, um, how was, I guess if you could speak a little bit about Birmingham at the time and how 
you know, because it was that way, uh, would influence young uh, Sonny Blount at that time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think Birmingham is uh, early 21st century or early 20th century. Birmingham is a really fascinating Mm -hmm. city, a really fascinating place. And, you know, I think, you know, those of us who aren't from there don't know the history. I didn't. Yeah. You know, we say Birmingham, right. We say Birmingham, Alabama. And I think we, we quickly think of, you know, kind of Bull Connor and, and the sort of police dogs and the water cannons and the struggles of the, the civil rights in the 1960s. And, um, you know, that's, that history is very real and very important sure, part of, sure. of Birmingham's history and part of America's history. But I, I think it's also um, important to kind of recognize how the, the sort of brutality uh, and sort of systemic quality of, of, of Jim Crow racism in the South um, also uh, unintentionally uh, created a certain kind of black world, a black urban world that had a certain kind of autonomy from the Jim Crow white world, uh, particularly culturally. And so by looking at early 20th century Birmingham, we see kind of the, you know, the, the, the seeds of uh, so much, I think, of what um, in Sun Ra's own experience kind of started to flourish when he came to Chicago. But also I think we see, um, you know, I think we see a lot about uh, a certain kind of urban Southern experience that uh, not just Sun Ra, but a lot of folks, uh, black people who migrated from the South to the North over the course of the 20th century took with them. Uh, and I think if we follow the musicians in particular, we see, uh, you know, the kind of impact that they had on the North. And it was an impact that was somewhat different, again, different from the blues musicians, for example, that we're familiar with in terms of their trajectory from South to North. You know, I, I think, uh, you know, Birmingham, what's important for Sunrise is that he, he grew up, first of all, in the downtown area of Birmingham. And so I, it, for me, it was important to try to reconstruct what his daily life would have been like as a, as a kid growing up there, the kind of walking of the streets that he did, his exploration of the black downtown. You know, Birmingham had, had two downtowns. It had a white downtown and it had a black downtown right next to each other. And that black downtown was a space of really uh, flourishing kind of black vernacular culture in terms of the music, in terms of the, the social life, the Masonic lodges, the, you know, the kind of spaces that um, African-Americans in the city created for themselves. And in those spaces, uh, you know, they created uh, their own sense of their own history, uh, their own kind of uh, definition of their own expressive culture through music. And, you know, the, the young Sonny Blunt, uh, you know, grew up in this world and, and really imbibed it. And it became the kind of raw material of his imagination in terms of the way, you know, the world could be different, uh, the way the world, the way that the future might come to be different. Yeah. He also, uh, you know, when he was in Birmingham, uh, he was a he was a, he was not a marginal figure in the city. Mm-hmm. You know, as he got older, he was trained musically at industrial high school uh, under the the most important uh, African American band teacher in in the city. Uh, and like other musicians, yeah. he became a professional. Yeah, he became a professional musician uh, at a very young, at a very early age. He he you know he headed up what was called a territory band. You know, a swing band that travel throughout the South. And what I try to do in the early sections of the book is kind of follow him through that, that process so we can get a better sense not only of his development, but how, uh, you know, black urban culture in the 1920s and 1930s in the Southeast of the country uh, was in many ways kind of knitted together by these itinerant musical groups uh, that traveled from, from town to town. Uh, you know, playing concerts in, you know, tobacco barns and warehouses and whatever other spaces okay. uh, the local uh, the local folks could find. And so by tracing this, you know, this kind of early Birmingham experience, um, we do get a sense, I think, of how, you know, he, he was already in his 30s when he migrated to Chicago in 1946. And, uh, you know, in many ways, he'd already had a career, uh, but he'd also kind of decided 
that he wanted more than a musical career. You know, at a certain point, he stepped back from the territory band circuit and uh, kind of holed up in his grandmother's house downtown and created a certain kind of, uh, you know, I think what we would call today kind of musical salon yeah. where folks could just kind of drop by and play and rehearse. And he would sort of lecture them on, you know, his new ideas about the way the universe was constructed and, you know, what segregation was like on Jupiter and, and all sorts of ideas. Um, and at the same time was developing musically, you know, with these folks he was playing with and seeing ways in which he might, uh, you know, combine kind of a musical life with a kind of a, you know, a, phil a philosophical mm -hmm. kind of adventurism. The, the final thing I would say about Birmingham that's so important for Sunrise development is um, by the World War II period, um, he had kind of put his career sort of in, in idle, uh, but then got a draft notice and uh, refused the draft. And as people might expect, this was a very dangerous thing oh, yeah. for a black man in the South to do uh, during a, a patriotic war. Yeah. Uh, he resisted the war. He was jailed for it. He was uh, eventually sent to a, a civilian work camp in Pennsylvania. And uh, when he returned to Birmingham, he was pretty much blackballed after that. He was asked to leave. Like he was um, kind of dishonorably discharged in some way. Am I right about that? It wasn't dishonorably discharged, but he was he was unhappy there. Okay. Uh, I mean, or let's put it this way: he was, on the one hand, he actually, in retrospect, came to appreciate the unique environment of the camp. It was really the first time in his life that he had been um, really in close proximity with white people okay. who treated him with a certain kind of respect. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, later on, I think he was quite proud of his CO status, and he used to, you know, refer back to the COs as the kind of noble the noble whites in a world where most white people weren't, uh, right? But but I think at the same time he was also he was he was isolated from his music and he was isolated from from his own world. So he he did clamor to uh, to be released and they finally did release him early and he went okay. back to Birmingham. But he but he really wasn't able to kind of do much musically. Uh, there's a few snippets of newspaper reportage that suggests you know, whenever he tried to give a concert it was shut down, and so. In 1946, um, he got on the train and went to Chicago. Yeah. Um, it is uh, interesting, and you touched on it earlier there, kind of a city within a city where uh, ide ideas and kind of uh, dreams and visions of a, you know, a black metropolis that was thriving could really, you know, kind of play out. And, you know, you really see that in, in what Sun Ra was about. But, yeah, he did. He ended up going to south, the south side, which I guess is another – uh, example in some ways of a city within a city with a lot going on. But, uh, you know, I love, there's a lot of different things we could talk about when it comes to um, Sun Ra in Chicago, but there's two places. One of them um, that he landed at when he first got up there is Club uh, Deliza. Did I say that right? The, the Club Delisa. Delisa, mm -hmm. I thought of Delisa. Um, you know, mm -hmm. and that's just, mm -hmm. that was a, a big place of growth musically and, you know, working with Fletcher Henderson there. And then um, uh, Calumet City as well. And that was that was wild for me to learn about. I did not know much about that, the, um, you know, kind of the racial, racially abusive, um, you know, environment there, but also how he was able to grow musically as, you know, there was a place where his his playing wasn't restricted in the same way that he had been before. Um, so I'd love to hear, uh, you know, you speak on either of these places and, or just even Chicago, whatever, wherever you want to take us, just how, you know, all these, cause I mean, it was wild that Chicago, you know, was known, um, it was kind of, people were swarming there musically at the time, because I guess it was known as the place with the most clubs, the most clubs equals the most work. So, I mean, what an exciting time <laughs> for musicians and, um, someone like Sunrise as, he, as he's growing. So yeah, wherever, wherever you want to take us, this is a lot to discuss in Chicago. Yeah, 1946 was an extraordinary moment to land in Chicago because it really was it really was uh, a very very flourishing club scene. You know, there was a lot of money that was flowing through the South Side because of the war years still, and and so the club scene was really jumping and sort of the in some ways the pinnacle of the the South Side club scene was the club was the club de Lisa and. Uh, you know, this was, as you, I think, have suggested, it was a segregated 
club world and was a segregated city, uh, every bit as much in some ways as, as Birmingham. Um, but the Club de Lisa, uh, it did attract a kind of interracial uh, crowd, uh, but it was very much the, the pinnacle of kind of Southside, uh, you know, a kind of uh, music club, swing music, essentially, uh, with dancing uh, and kind of, you know, the place to go and the place to kind of see and be seen. And um, Sun Ra, um, sort of partly through happenstance, uh, was able to get hooked on with his his musical idol, uh, Fletcher Henderson, uh, whose orchestra happened to have an extended engagement at the Club de Lisa in 1946. And so soon after arriving in Chicago, Sun Ra was uh, basically uh, his rehearsal uh, copy is basically his copyist, and then sort of worked with uh, you know sort of rehearsing the band, and and then eventually you know took took some of Fletcher's solos, and so in many ways Sunrod, you know, or he wasn't Sunrod, he was still Sonny Blunt. He entered the the Chicago scene kind of at the top, and had a very successful run there, and that you know resulted in connections that got him other kinds of gigs. Uh, for a while, he was in charge of a an ensemble that. Uh, the bassist Eugene Wright put together called the Dukes of Swing, which played at the uh, the Pershing Hotel, which was also another big kind of night spot. And what I try to do in the in, in the book is to track, you know, his uh, his experiences at those places, but then also recognize that throughout this, he's also kind of popping up in all sorts of different kinds of places musically that are very different from those. Some of them are kind of just informal jam sessions with young bebop musicians, kind of exploring the new adventurous music. Some of it is sort of session work with uh, Leonard Chess, the, the blues music. He later became famous as the kind of, you know, the chess label uh, pioneer of a uh, person who recorded uh, a lot of the Chicago blues artists of the 1950s. Sun Ra played with uh, aristocrat record sessions that uh, Leonard Chess was running in the late 40s. Um, one of the most interesting uh, places that I explore uh, that he's playing in this time is, as you said, um, this uh, this place, Calumet City. And uh, Calumet City was a, uh, it still is, it's a town in the south suburbs of Chicago. And at the time, uh, it was a uh, it was a white town that uh, was making a name for itself as a kind of a you know what was called in those days a sin suburb. You know, place a kind of wide open town. So lots of strip clubs, prostitution more or less legal. Uh, you know, all bars and 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 uh, and clubs. And it was the place where uh, you know, kind of white steel workers would go after work and. Uh, Day trippers in the city of Chicago would go out, and visiting businessmen would go out. And in order to make the whole thing hum, uh, it required not only uh, you know lots of young women dancers uh, and striptease artists who generally commuted out from the city, but also legions of, of musicians to accompany them. And Sun Ra, uh, again still Sunny Blunt, uh, began to go out to Calumet City to play the clubs there, the strip clubs there, uh, like many other musicians, I think largely because some of the more lucrative opportunities in Chicago had started to dry up and they needed money. Uh, and, but it was an extraordinary uh, experience, I think, in many levels. One is it was, it was, it was, it was brutal, racially speaking. Uh, it was, in many ways, you know, musicians would say it was like being back in the South where Black musicians had to go in through the back door and they had to play under conditions where there was a curtain up separating them from the stage so they, they couldn't see the, you know, the naked bodies of the dancers. Even driving there and, was uh, incredibly dangerous. It was. They had to drive through a lot of neighborhoods that were that were already uh, the site. Yeah, huge conflicts between, uh, between uh, black resettlers who were moving into those communities and the white resistance. Uh, and white riots that were uh, that were greeting them. So yeah, it was a very dangerous um, kind of thing to do. On the other hand, it was something that so many black musicians of that period, uh, some of them are you know kind of now uh, jazz luminary household names, uh, went out to play there, uh, partly for money, but they also um, they went out there too. I think because 
they learned a lot musically, some of them, by, to, by, by having that experience. Some of them, it was like playing for dancers. Some of it was playing, for, playing with musicians that they'd always wanted to play with. There were folks who went out there, like um, the bassist Richard Davis, who went out there just to play with, uh, with Sonny Blunt, who was already developing a name as an innovative musician, somebody you could learn from, and somebody who also had you know, various, very adventurous ideas about what music could do. So what I try to do in the Calumet City section of the book is to kind of render for, for readers kind of what this experience was like musically, but also socially to kind of take this trip out there and to kind of do this and, and get paid really poorly. And yet at the same time, um, in the process, forge certain kinds of, you know, what I think of as bonds of solidarity between these musicians that, that I think really contributed to a certain kind of sensibility that uh, the Southside music scene thereafter uh, began to exhibit, which, which I, I see as a certain kind of, uh, uh, a sort of privileging of autonomy of, of, you know, this is our thing that we're developing our music. Um, the, uh, all through the 1950s, the Chicago music scene uh, had a certain different culture than, say, New York's or other kinds of places. And I think that, in part, the Calumet City experience and other kinds of, uh, you know, sort of racist hardship that were particular to Chicago and the kinds of musical experiences that, that these musicians had uh, in that context uh, very much contributed to the, to the distinctive qualities of the, you know, the Chicago scene. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that whole section was completely eye-opening to me and you could just see how it did contribute to the direction they were going even just um you know learning how to play to accompany the dancers and and you know the freedom that was Mm -hmm. there and just everything and it's you know everything leading up to it does show one thing that i mean he truly had i mean just a, a mastery of his art you know coming through working um you know with john t watley everything everyone he was working with i mean you know, uh, Fletcher Henderson and just all these pieces just make sense to how talented he was and how skilled. But then, I mean, you, you know, it's a lot of the book also spoke to me to kind of like the power of music. And once you do master your skill, where you can take it. And, you know, he did. It's just fun to think of the ideas that he believed that if music was performed in the proper spirit, you can really travel beyond and, and comment on the world mm-hmm. and transport musicians and listeners. And, but I mean, that all comes back to, you know, having those chops and, and you know, it, all these hours spent exploring, but it really did speak to, you know, what music can do. And I like to think about that a lot. Um, he was, a he was a leader. Um, and it's interesting to see how he comes to being a leader because, you know, obviously he had many bands with many people working with him and playing with him, but he was reluctant at first um, mm-hmm. for, for a variety of reasons. Um, some, you know, danger it posed. Others uh, just didn't want to stand out at times. But, you know, uh, obviously in the end, it, he was someone who was a successful leader. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the way he, you know, uh, fell into leadership and, and um, kind of his style of leadership as well. Yeah, that's. Uh, I think that's an interesting part of his story. Uh, that he was a reluctant leader, mm-hmm. you know, kind of an ambivalent re- leader, uh, which is hard to believe, of course, when you see the pictures of him, <laughs> of someone who, who who's not afraid of not afraid of standing out. No. <laughs> and it's and so how how he got there, I yeah. think, is a really interesting kind of journey. And um, if you track, you know, if you trace it from sort of his earliest years, um, you know, this was a this was a young child who was very different. He was seen as different within his own community, special in some ways, extraordinarily brilliant, uh, you know, an unbelievable reader, apparently. Someone who at least claims he sort of taught himself to play the piano when he was uh, 10 years old. And uh, he, um, you know, uh, so, so he was kind of constantly singled out. But at the same time, I think he was also odd and teased and, you know, uh, I think reluctant to expose himself and of course he's also you know a, a young black man in a in a very in a viciously racist uh, and often very dangerous white world yeah. in Birmingham and so um, I think he he on the one hand you know felt uh, a certain kind of destined for a leader you know the kind of being destined for leadership but on the other hand 
very much cognizant of the risks of what it was to be a leader in a world that, you know, um, doesn't necessarily look kindly upon difference, especially when it's exhibited by black people. And so, you know, I think what, one of the things that was very pivotal to Sunrise's experience in Birmingham was apparently a, a dream he had. Uh, and it was a dream in which he imagined himself to be uh, transported to um, to Saturn, uh, kind of teleported and given special instructions by the beings there that he would have a special destiny. And I, to, to, according to his biographer, John Sweat, this very much confirmed, you know, it confirmed his his sense of being special, but it also made him fearful of what would be required of him. And you know, in a lot of ways, this story is similar to what you hear from other, you know, folks throughout history who have, you know, subsequently become visionaries, you know, preachers or, or political leaders or others. Um, you know, there's also, I think there's a tradition in the African-American community, particularly at this time, that, that leaders should be um, sort of the embodiment or the, you know, kind of expressive uh, channel for, for the race, you know, for the community. And that means being, you know, like everyone else, being a representative person on some level, you know, somebody who other people can see is like them. And I think he never felt that he, he fit that description. And so what would leadership look like, you know, for him? And I think he, he tried it out with the territory band experience and there's a lot he didn't like about it. Uh, he withdrew from it. Uh, but I think he also, um, you know, particularly after he moved to Chicago and met um, Alton Abraham, who would end up being such an important person in, in developing the Sun Ra Orchestra and uh, creating the L Saturn uh, group that the orchestra came out of. And he then eventually became kind of Sun Ra's business partner and record producer and, and just kind of all around uh you know, sort of uh, logistics guy for uh, for the Sunra operation. Um, it wasn't really until he met Alton that uh, he began to kind of take seriously the idea that in Chicago he could create his own band and that he could, uh, you know, take that band out into the kind of public realm. Initially, when he started to put together the orchestra, he he envisioned it as a rehearsal band. You know, he wanted kind of dedicated musicians who would really sacrifice their lives to the glory of of, of creating a new music. And he wasn't that clear how this would relate to the outside world. And it was really through Alton's influence who said, you know, you can get out there to the clubs. We can get you a gig. You can play for, you know, this society dance function. Uh and those are the kind of places often the orchestra first played. And uh, gradually by being pushed by Alton, uh, you know, the orchestra became a, a kind of real ensemble and uh, Sun Ra became its recognized leader. And he gradually became more comfortable uh, on the stage as well. You know, if you look at the pictures from the earliest iterations of the orchestra, you know, you can hardly even see Sun Ra. He's kind of in the back. It's a very odd thing for a, a leader of an ensemble to do, right? Uh, and then you look at, you know, finally by the end of the 1950s when the orchestra has sort of had awesome. their, um, you know, their moment in Chicago. And uh, it's one of the last uh, kind of big gigs they have in the 19, the end of the 1950s in 1960, 61 at the Wonder Inn. There's a photograph where you can kind of see, you know, Sun Ra who looks, who looks more like the Sun Ra that we recognize from the later pictures, somebody with the kind of sparkling you know, gown and the headdress and the sort of commanding presence on the stage who's sort of directing things like the kind of, you know, sorcerer uh, of, of music. Yeah. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned um, Alton because it, uh, it brings us to a topic uh, I need to and want to kind of bring up. And, uh, and that's the idea of this uh, secret society uh, they created um, to kind of Devoted to like the uh, origins and identity of uh, of Black Americans, and uh, that is the FMI research. Um, and it's 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 there's a lot to chew on, and you really explore it uh, in just a eye opening way in your book. And I was wondering if you could just tell us, uh, give us a little taste of what is uh, this um, society about, and what mm -hmm. does it tell us about. Uh, who Sun Ra is and Alton as well, because they were kind of hand in hand in this, uh, in this project. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I, people actually don't really know how the name was was pronounced because it was a secret society, ask, and yeah. uh, it's spelled T H M E I, and most people pronounce it Tamai, okay. but I don't think we really know yeah, how it. how the men themselves pronounced it, and um, and it was a secret society that uh, that Alton uh, actually initially created with some some colleagues uh, on the south side of Chicago. And Alton himself, and came very much out of Alton's own, uh, you know, just like uh, Sonny Blunt, separately before they even knew each other. They were they were both kind of seekers of arcane knowledge, and they both kind of collected old books, many of which were kind of you know biblical commentaries and sort of alternative histories of the black race, and you know in a, in an era when you know there were no, uh, or very few. Uh, legitimate histories of African Americans that actually positioned them as protagonists in their own history, and so um, Alton was very much a seeker of alternative knowledge, uh, kind of a spiritual person uh, like Sun Ra, and he put together this study group with these men to kind of uh, to sort of come, you know, put put together kind of a, a, a sort of an alternative picture of. The origins of civilization, where where racial difference comes from, all in service of trying to explain how did we get here in you know 1950 Chicago that we live in a world where we are confined in this way, and uh, you know this is a modern world. It's a world that seems to be striving toward progress, and yet it seems in many ways no different from you know earlier eons of human history in which we've been subjugated, and so. Uh, Alton, uh, largely self-taught in this work, as as were his colleagues, uh, not only kind of hole up somewhere and do biblical commentary, but they kind of hang out in Washington Park, which is a kind of a central meeting ground on the south side. And like other kind of groups that hung out there, many of them religious groups, proselytizers and radicals of various kinds and folks who who were seeking an audience, they are, you know, they have their own identity there. They began to kind of talk to other groups and they're recruiting people. And then sometime in the early 1950s, um, Alton and, uh, and Sonny Blunt meet and they quickly realize they, they share these, these kind of spiritual and kind of racial revisionist kind of philosophy interests. And so um, they, Sunrod joins the group and not only joins the group, but becomes clearly for Alton, uh, the fulfillment of a certain kind of leader that the group was looking for. And he, it, it's actually Alton who convinces uh, Sonny Blunt that, um, that he needs a name that befits his, you know, his real identity, which was, a, a, you know, kind of an alternative leader of, of, um, of the black community uh, and with this special history uh, that is connecting him and Alton and others to a black ancient world that's that's founded in Ethiopia and Egypt, and so um, it's it's with Alton's urging that uh, that Sonny Blunt goes down to the Cook County Courthouse and changes his name to Sunra, mm -hmm. or actually Le Sonny Ra, and then Sunra becomes his his stage name. And so, you know, one of the things that uh, they, they continue to together, they continue to do their their biblical research. They produce these fascinating. Uh, pieces of writing, uh, these broadsheets, uh, kind of type sheets of commentary, which bring together uh, kind of biblical commentary and a kind of a, an alternative theory of, of racial identity that um, that they actually take into Washington Park and sort of share with others, and at the same time being very guarded about their own sort of secret society identity. And essentially what I try to do in the book is to show how this this uh, kind of intellectual world was very important to, to Sun Ra's own ideas and how much of his kind of 1950s music making is animated by his interest and Alton's interest in taking the ideals that they are formulating in this, in this kind of uh, religious uh, milieu into the music world. In other words, how do you put together a kind of performance group uh, that performs at clubs and that um, shares its music with audiences in a way that can convey the things that they think they're discovering, which is that, you know, all of human history has covered over 
the sort of special destinies that black people have had, uh, the special identities that have been suppressed. And so the, you know, in many ways, what, what Ra sees as, his music is doing, his earliest compositions, is kind of translating the spirit of those kinds of questions and answers into musical forms, into, you know, taking uh, existing standard tunes and kind of reworking them so that they speak to a different kind of spirit or they speak to a different kind of uh, musical sensibility. And all through the 1950s, we can kind of see the ways in which, particularly in his song titles, uh, you know, he's working on uh, ways to connect ancient Africa to, uh, you know, a modern future in which, in which black people can fully come into their own. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's it's a lot to chew on, and I was, it's it's so so compelling, but it's it's so inspiring too. You know, the the drawing of alternate sources of knowledge to challenge the you know the racial conceptions that were at their hands and in their moment, and it's 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 also wild to see how uh, and, and beautiful too how how he takes it to the stage and how the performances kind of become their own. Um, I think you kind of phrase it as creative manifestos and. It just it, it's that, mm-hmm. that whole that whole section, um, which is lengthy, is just it's 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 so captivating to me. I mean, there's a what's so fun about your book is there's so many different pieces to his life as you go through and different stories within those things. One um, that just came to mind now as I was thinking uh, that I just amused me to no end is that uh, when he was in Calumet City, he uh, at one point. Again, to speak to the power of music, which I think kind of underlies throughout this whole book, which I love, is uh, he saw someone that I believe was like inebriated and kind of had their head down. And he told one of the players with him that he was going to wake him up by his playing and actually kind of rose him from his uh, to standing just through playing, which was really, really wonderful. And there's just all these fun little um, stories of who he was and, and everything. But um, kind of bring us home. A little bit and just to speak because I just I've loved over the last few years to see um, kind of like a, an appreciation of his work kind of uh, you know I've always seen it in a lot of uh, more underground um, you know musicians and just but I'm seeing it in like more you know pop culture and stuff these days I see Solange doing mm-hmm. things I've seen Lady Gaga uh, inspired by him Thundercat Odd Future the large uh, hip-hop group D'Angelo just all these people really truly inspired you know kind of having a moment um you know in the last few years which is mm-hmm. totally appropriate and beautiful and i was curious if uh you know you just want to let us know a little bit what you think about his leg what you think his legacy would be moving forward or, or, or just what makes him so special i'd love to hear in your words uh, what, what what makes sun ra so special and, and unforgettable or someone you'd you know that you were inspired to do this incredibly deep dive into his life and, um, and, and his studies. Yeah. I see his legacy kind of almost in the, in the plural sense that he's got multiple legacies mm. depending on sort of, you know, where you, Take it. where you enter in with Sun Ra and kind of where you see it sort of, um, you know, where you see his influence and his kind of, um, his, his work manifesting itself in terms of the work that other people are doing. You know, I think at the, at, one of the things I wanted to do with the book was to, to give a little bit of a sense of kind of locally within Chicago, mm-hmm. how important his, his cultural legacy and his musical legacy have been. Um, you know, Chicago, uh, Sun Ra was working during the 1950s during a period when the club scene was dying. Um, it was extremely difficult for musicians to stay in Chicago and make a living. And one of the things that, you know, Sunra did was inspire uh, a generation of musicians to stay in Chicago uh, and to kind of create a, a new kind of music for themselves. And many of these musicians came together, you know, in, in, a, in a musical collective called the Association for the Advancement of Creative Musicians. And, you know, it, which still exists today uh, and which in many ways changed the, you know, the face of, of kind of avant-garde music and, and even kind of black music more generally uh, through, its in, through its musical influence and also through its kind of cultural influence on, in terms of sort of beginning to view uh, musicians and black musicians, musicians in particular as kind of as intellectuals, as people who. Uh, were kind of making statements about the world. They weren't just entertainers. They were they were folks who 
who had something to say and they had revolutionary in many ways, uh, you know, new means through which to say it. And we see kind of the local influence of that and other musicians who became very important in Chicago in the 60s and, and thereafter. And, and so I, I think it's important to kind of note that. But I, I think also, and I think this is what your question gets at, there's, there's a kind of a larger influence and, and legacy um, that Sunrise had uh, that, that seems to only be growing. And that I think in many ways, you know, I think that also kind of has multiple sources. I think on the one hand, um, you know, speaking honestly, uh, we are in a kind of a, you know, a cultural omniverse that, that, that craves difference and it craves, you know, something that's new, something that's different. And sometimes certainly he fits that. Um, and so I think that, you know, there's a kind of a immediate attraction to the puzzle and the curiosity, you know, that, that Sun Ra is. I think more deeply though, too, there's a recognition that um, the courage that it takes to fully inhabit the person of Sun Ra um, is not only kind of to be admired, but um, in many ways a kind of a, a key to understanding his power, that yeah. you know, this is someone who really could say that he was not human. This is someone who could say, you know, I've lived in this world before, or I came to this world from somewhere else, who could, in fact, uh, you know, completely uh, with a straight face argue uh, for um, a future that he knew already existed and that you didn't, and he would be happy to tell you about it. And so I think that kind of uh, confidence and courage uh, is powerful. I also think too, though, um, you know, we're li- we live in an age where where utopia in many ways has a bad rap. You know, the, the idea that you know we can dream of a world that's radically different from ours is both you know uh, profoundly desired, but also uh, I think it's hard to do. Uh, and so, you know, it's hard to lend credence to that idea. And so I think um, Sunrise appealing. Um, you know, in part as a cultural figure, because um, he he really does encourage us to do that, and I think we want to do that. And I and, and I think it's also, you know, it's not coincidental that um, he really was a a very dynamic musical performer who who could be what we think of as avant garde and experimental, but also very accessible and entertaining. You know, if if you or your listeners, you know, have an opportunity to go, you know, hear and see the Sun Ra Orchestra, which is still performing under the leadership of Marshall Allen, Marshall one of the original members of the orchestra, right? Yeah. yeah. And and if, if you go, I mean, it's really, what's really striking is even people who don't think of themselves as kind of jazz heads or, you know, people who are into the avant-garde um, actually find it really both kind of challenging and fun uh, and, you know, vastly entertaining. Uh, there's a joyful quality yeah. to Sun Ra's music mm-hmm. that um, was always intentional on his part um, and that he saw very much uh, as part of his his mission as a musician and, and that, that that joy is communicated, you know, through the music and kind of, I think, also through the cultural persona. And, and I think that's also, um, you know, uh, that, that's part of his, his kind of legacy. The, I guess the other thing I wanted to sort of um, suggest in the book is that um, the question of his legacy is also important to connect with his own lineage in the sense that, um, well, I think sometimes Sun Ra is seen as a kind of an inventor of Afrofuturism. Um, you know, I see him more as a kind of a, a, a sort of a place where, where a whole set of Afrofuturist or kind of proto-Afrofuturist strands that are already present in African-American history um, from much earlier kind of come together. And so one of the things I try to do, and I think Sun Ra was himself was very conscious of this. He, he was an extraordinary reader. He had a sense of black history. And he also uh, was a borrower, you know, someone who took on the ideas of others and refashioned them into his own. And so, so much comes together with Sun Ra's work in the 1950s that had been kind of buried in the past, whether they were religious ideas or whether they were musical ideas. 
And then with Sun Ra and the orchestra, a lot of what they do over the next 40 and 50 years is kind of disseminate those ideas to the larger world. They're, they're emissaries and ambassadors from, from the traditions that they've inherited and, and reworked. And so I think that's appealing also, right? I think that's people feel like they're really discovering not just a musician and not just a cultural icon, but kind of a world. Yep. And, and that's, uh, you know, that's, that's really attractive. Yeah. Yeah. There's so once you get into it, there's so much to dig into just, just like your book. And I think what's beautiful too is, is, you know, kind of, uh, at the end of the day, there's a lot of, it's about hope and there's beauty in there. I mean, you know, the words from space is the place, there's no limit to the things you can do, no limit to the things you can be. And it's, you're right. I'm glad you mentioned that, that the joy that's in there and the purposeful joy. So, uh, Thank you so much for your time. I just, I mean, and for this book, it provided kind of like a, 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 a bevy of, of, you know, invaluable insight into Sun Ra was. And also, you know, I think the context regarding to the, the places, uh, it's so pivotal to understanding, you know, wh- who he was, what he became. And, you know, but it also sh- shone a light um, in, I think about, and you mentioned it earlier, just like I, I, I look at, um, Birmingham differently and, and what it was back then and I'm more interested to learn mm-hmm. more there and, and just you know Chicago at that time 1949 Chicago is something that you know that's it's mind-blowing how much you know music and joy and everything that was coming out of there and and it's just it's you know there's there's so much in this book and I'm, I'm glad you took the time to uh, talk about it with what that's here today so thank you very much well thank you Michael it's, it's really been a pleasure talking to you This podcast is in the loop, the Legion of Osiris podcasts. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love. Get in the loop at OsirisPod.com.